Our Father, we come to this place in our corporate worship where we open the word together to study and we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, help us to have ears to listen and and hearts to receive the truth, process it and, and Lord may you use by your spirit this truth to transform us ever closer to the image of our beloved Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're back to the book of Ephesians again, and I'm happy to be back here. And we're back here dealing now with the responsibilities and roles of husbands. We dealt previously over a number, I believe, three weeks with the role of the wife. And so now we deal with the role of the husband. And so men... Be here. Don't miss. If you must miss, if you're dying, (laughs) tell the ambulance to swing by, drop you off, wait outside, and they'll pick you up in an hour. If you can't wait an hour, then go to the website after you survive and listen. No, I'm serious. Don't miss this. There are so many things that are here in this text and have built up in my heart over a lot of years. And this is an opportunity to address those things, and I want to do that, and I want to do it as comprehensively as I can. And, you know, I don't want to be in the whole thing about, you know, this is my last this and my last that and and so forth, but this is the last time that I'm going to address this topic or have this opportunity to address this topic with the men of this church. And as go the men, so goes the church. This is huge. So don't miss this. It's also going to be strong meat. Really strong. Hard words. But know they're given in love. They're given to you in love. We live in an age where there is a growing disdain and pushback against authority, against traditions, against the institutions that hold authority. Brexit is a pushback against the European Union where England wants out. Yellow vests protesting and even rioting in France against the established order. A phenomenon that is not likely to end. In our own country, the, what I call the Donald Trump phenomenon is an expression really of pushback. He defeated 15 other Republican candidates and the presumptive establishment candidate for the presidency of the United States. It is a pushback. The rejection of the ruling order should not surprise us when you consider how corrupt, how insular, and how unresponsive many of the leaders in business, government, and the media have become. 
the economic chasm between the ruling class and the working class has never been greater. There is more wealth and power consolidated in the hands of a few than at any time in the history of the world. The French coined a term in the 18th century. That term is noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige. Which literally means nobility obligates. And it was an understanding among many in the ruling class, and I would say among the common people as well, that with wealth, power, and prestige comes social responsibility. Noblesse oblige. It's an idea that is nearly incomprehensible now in our day and age, and particularly among those who are of the ruling class. So what in the world, what does that have to do? What does that have to do with a sermon series on biblical authority and submission in marriage? A lot. Actually, a lot. Husbands are leaders. Husbands are leaders. And Christian leaders must be servants. Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 42, when his disciples on the way to Jerusalem for his crucifixion are jockeying with one another as to who will put themselves into the position of greatest authority, power, privilege. And Jesus calls them to himself, and he says in verse 42, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Christian leadership is servant leadership. Servant leadership. As one writer said, quote, leadership involves the responsibility to take action for the sake of others rather than the right to command others for one's own benefits. The Bible unequivocally teaches that husbands have been placed by God into a position of considerable authority within their marriage and their home. That's what the Bible teaches. But many, many men, too many men, fail to utilize their authority as God intends. They either wield it for their own advantage, or more often they abdicate it in order to be a nice guy. The nice guy syndrome. Beloved, there can be no leadership without authority. When a husband abdicates his authority, he abdicates his leadership. 
And that leaves the marriage union open to attack by outside influences and all kinds of pathologies. In all my years, in all my years of marital counseling, unresponsive, self-absorbed, and checked-out husbands and fathers are far more frequent than micromanaging authoritarians. And yet, generally, that's what people are afraid of when we talk about authority. Oh, it might become an authoritarian. Listen, the men are not in danger, generally speaking, of becoming authoritarians. They are far in greater danger of abdicating their leadership and abdicating their authority. Brian Chappell, longtime pastor, president emeritus of Covenant Theological Seminary agrees. He says the following, I quote, Abdication of responsibility is more common than domination. Abdication. More common than domination. Why? Why do husbands check out? Why? Some are fleshly men, and they really don't care about anyone besides themselves. Most are unprepared for marriage, and they don't know how to be a husband. Due to either poor role models in their own families or to a lack of biblical instruction on what it means to be a husband. Often the lack of success in leading their wives and their children caused them to shut down, to turn away from those areas of responsibility and turn to the areas where they are more competent, the areas where they receive the encouraging feedback. Successful businessmen who are failures at home. Typically, husbands are spiritually immature when they get married. And that means they really don't know how to love another sinner. The tragedy is too many husbands remain immature through neglect of the means of grace that God has provided to us. There is no substitute for the serious and diligent study of the scriptures. Men, we will never grow, never ever grow beyond our investment in the word of God. Biblical change is a lot like farming. There is a tremendous amount of hard work on the front side that produces a bountiful crop later on. But there's no crop without front effort. And so we have to work at this. It's not going to come by osmosis. We've got to work at it. And we do it in faith, like a farmer. Believing that God will bless his word. He will honor those who honor him. 
Now I'll tell you, as a husband, it's easy to become overwhelmed and discouraged by our failures. And we have a lot of them. But instead of turning in on ourselves in self-pity, let us, let us run to the gospel. Let us run to the gospel because it is there in the gospel that we will find the forgiveness we need, the hope to keep going, and the power of the Spirit to change. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The beauty of his statement here where he says, just as Christ loved the church is, guys, we don't have to try to figure this out. We have not been just given a responsibility without being given a clear role model to the fulfillment of those responsibilities, and it lies in Christ. He has walked before us. He has modeled for us what it means to love and to love perfectly. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Ladies, wives, as we spend the next number of weeks together, and I'm not sure how many yet, let me ask you to pray for your husband. If you don't have a husband, then pray for the husbands in this church or the men who will someday be husbands. Your husband bears a frightening and humbling weight of responsibility for the state of his marriage and his home. Pray for him. Husbands, as we begin together, let us heed the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, where he writes, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Open to Ephesians chapter 5 if you're not already there. Ephesians chapter 5. We will take up the text this morning in verse 23. Here's where we're going on a big basis for the next weeks. From verses 23 and following... I have found 14 characteristics of a husband's authority. 14. I only had seven for a wife, okay? But I think that's appropriate to the text because Paul spends a lot more time talking to husbands in this text than he does to wives. So there are 14 characteristics of a husband's authority 
so that we might understand, appreciate, and exercise it in a Christ-honoring fashion in our homes and in our marriages. We are going to look at the first one this morning. That's it, just the first one. But it is super foundational. So number one, first characteristic. A husband's authority is unavoidable. A husband's authority is unavoidable. As we begin our study together here, it's important that we understand this reality. But as a husband here, your authority is unavoidable. It is the foundation, really, of all of our future studies when we will talk about how that authority is to be exercised. But this morning, we're going to establish from the Scriptures the unavoidable reality of it. Now, it's demonstrated, and here's the outline for this morning, okay? The unavoidable nature of a husband's authority is demonstrated First, through the meaning of the word head. That's the first point this morning. Secondly, it is demonstrated through the events of creation. That's the second point. Third, it is established through the grammatical construction of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. That's the third point. And finally, the fourth point this morning is that the husband's unavoidable authority means that he carries an inescapable leadership. And that's really the application. Unavoidable authority leads to inescapable leadership. Inescapable leadership. Okay? So here's where we're going. The meaning of the word head, the events of creation, the grammatical construction of Ephesians 5.23, and the inescapable leadership that is a consequence. All right. Let's start with the meaning of the word head. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Paul commands wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Verse 22, we've looked at this. And to do so is an act of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, verse 23, Paul supplies the reason why, the theological reason why. You notice verse 23 begins with for, the conjunction for. That's to provide the reason. This is the reason. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because or for the husband is the head of his wife. Okay? This is the reason. You are to be submissive to your own husband. Why? Because he is your head. Because he is your head. Now the word head, kephale, is in the Greek, the word head, it means authority. It means authority over. It means ruler. That's what the word means. It appears several thousand times in the Greek language. And whenever it's used, when person A is said to be the head of person B, 
Kephale means that person A is an authority over person B. So when Paul says, well, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he is saying that the husband is an authority over his wife, as Christ is in authority over the church. There's no other way to understand that. You are married, and you are a man, you are in authority over your wife. That's a reality, an unavoidable one. The relationship of loving authority and submission originates within the nature of God. It originates within the, the nature of God and is an expression of how the Trinity relate to each other. This is important to understand. It provides balance. It gives insight. It provides theological justification. Whose idea is authority and submission? It's God's. It's part of God's nature and the relationship within the triune God. Although equal, essentially equal in every sense of the word, Father, Son, and Spirit, they operate within the Godhead in an authority structure. There is an authority structure within the Godhead. For those of you theologians, this is called the economic trinity. The economic trinity, as opposed to the ontological trinity. If you know what I'm talking about, you're dialed in. If you don't, don't worry about it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see it. Same word, speaking of authority. It is at the Father's direction, and in accordance with the Father's eternal plan, that the Son is the head of the church. Verse 23, right? As Christ is the head of the church. That is the Father's direction. It is the Father's plan. It is at the Father's decree that this is true. You can go back to the first chapter of this book in Ephesians, and you see in verse 5, where in love he, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. All authority stems from God the Father. All authority. And in order to understand it and to exercise it properly, we must understand it and exercise it as he intends it. This is key. And not in the way that it is so often twisted and distorted by sin. The unavoidable nature of the husband's authority demonstrated by the use of the word head, kephale. Right? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of his wife. Secondly, the events of creation. The events of creation. When was the husband's headship established? When? 
Again, we can thank the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, where he says there, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Notice when Paul is addressing the relationship here between men and women, he goes back to Genesis. And that's where we're going to go. To the second chapter of Genesis to be specific. And so I invite you to turn there. The second chapter of Genesis. It is really, really key to understand the unavoidable nature of a husband's authority stemming here from the second chapter of Genesis. Because what that means is that the authority of a husband within the marriage relationship and thus within the home is not a societal convention. It's not something that, that, that people just get, got together and said, okay, who's going to be the leader here? We've got to have a leader. And they threw fingers. And Adam came out on top. No. God put it all together this way. The other thing to take note of as we begin to look at this together is that it's the second chapter of Genesis, not the third. And the reason that is significant, it is because in the second chapter of Genesis, we are dealing with creation on the sixth day prior to the fall. In other words, we are in a world without sin. So the authority of a husband within the marriage relationship is not the consequence of sin. His authority is bent and twisted by sin, to be sure. But it is not a consequence of sin. It is a function of the divine design. Reflecting, as I say, the nature of the triunity of God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, when Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. You know, maybe Paul get it all wrong. Maybe he's, maybe he's reading too much out of Genesis chapter 2. Maybe he's mistaken here in 1 Corinthians 11. And there are, there are those who call themselves evangelicals who would postulate that idea. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Paul correctly understood the reality of the man's headship and authority from Genesis chapter 2. Because within Genesis chapter 2, we have the textual evidence that the events of, of Genesis chapter 2 are to be foundational and, and um, to be foundational <laughs> and the pattern, there's a good word, for all future marriages. 
prototype. We see it here. Are you in Genesis 2? Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's commentary on the events of that day. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Guess what? Adam didn't have a father and a mother. So God himself is looking at the event of that day and exactly how he worked it out and saying this is the pattern going forward. Jesus himself understood it exactly that way because in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, when he is tested on the topic of divorce, he comes right back to this passage and says that's the way it's supposed to be. It is the pattern. It is the prototype. We could call it a creation ordinance, a creation ordinance. It determines how the relationship of all subsequent marriages are to operate. Now, let's just take a look at it for a minute. Evidences for headship within this creation account. First is man's priority. Man's priority. In other words, Adam was created first. Adam was created first. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. It is the man's priority. God created the man first. Then the woman. And he created the woman from the man. Beyond that, look at verses 15 through 17 and note the stewardship given to Adam. Eve's not on the picture yet. She, she's still not here yet. Still a sixth day. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam, created first, is given a stewardship by God. He is given a stewardship of both the garden of God and the word of God. They are entrusted to him. It is the man's priority. Secondly, the evidences for headship are the man's partner. The man's partner. In other words, the woman was made to be the helper, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or corresponding to him. She was made to help him. Help him what? Help him in the stewardship of the creation and the word. When we looked at this, whatever it was, a month and a half, two months ago, 
I don't have time to go back through that, okay? To be a helper is uh, God takes to himself. He is the helper of Israel. It is a noble thing. It is a noble thing. Third evidence for the headship from the creation account is what I will call man's domination. Man's domination. The word domination, it means power or control over a person or a thing. It comes from the Latin dominus, which means master or lord. It is the man's domination. By the way, right, 1 Peter 3.6, Sarah called Abraham Lord. And you will be her daughters if you do the same without fear. Okay, the man's domination. What do I mean by that? The man names the woman. The man names the woman. The, the exercise of naming is the exercise of authority. When you are in authority over something, you get to name it. Parents name their children. Because why? Well, because they are in authority over their children. They get to give it, he or she, his or her name. Verse 19, chapter 2. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. He is in authority over the creation to name it. After the creation of Eve, the Lord God brings her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Literally, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. The man names the woman. Where did the word woman come from? Okay. Old English. The old English, okay? You can even see within the word man, right? Notice as well on this line that when you go over to chapter 3, after the fall, and verse 20, so chapter 3 and verse 20, Adam again names the woman. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. This indicates that his authority over her, although terribly abused in the events of that day, remained. It was not forfeited. He remains in headship over her. Fourth. After they took and they ate, and God came, he calls to Adam, not Eve. And he calls to Adam, and, and he holds Adam accountable when Eve is the one who ate first. 
Right? Chapter 3, verse 9. They, verse 8, they had hid themselves. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Verse 17, chapter 3. Then to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The creation itself carries the curse because the man transgressed. That's a Paul's exact point in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And by the way, you better rejoice in that reality. Because if that's not the way God set it up, then Christ could never stand in for you. As in Adam all fell, as in Christ all be made alive. It's huge. It's huge. So the creation account itself, the events of the creation account, are evidences of the unavoidable headship of the husband. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. Third. Third evidence the unavoidable headship of the husband, his unavoidable authority, is the grammatical construction of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, and in particular, the difference between the indicative and the imperative. The difference between the indicative and the imperative. One of the things as we read the scriptures that we have to take notice of, we have to pay attention to, is the difference between an indicative verb and an imperative verb. The indicative and the imperative. The indicative form is used to express a statement of fact. What is? The imperative form is used to express what ought to be and forms the commands. For example, the room is cold. The room is cold. The dog is barking. The ball is round. Those are indicatives. They are statements of what is. They are not imperatives. They are not ought statements. There's no ought about them. And by the way, the gospel is the great indicative. Because it declares what God did. The imperative is how we are to respond to that truth. But an example of an imperative would be turn on the heat. The room is cold, that's the indicative. The imperative would be turn on the heat. Bring in the dog. <laughs> Throw the ball. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. Those are oughts. Now, the significance of, of this little grammar lesson is simply here in verse 23 of chapter 5 is that Paul's statement here is an indicative statement. Look at it again. For the husband is. It's an indicative verb. For the husband is the head of the wife. It's a statement of reality, and it's a statement of reality that is true for all marriages for all time. 
The husband is, statement of fact, the head of the wife. Nowhere in Scripture is husband, our husbands ever commanded to become their wife's head. Gentlemen, it happened when you said, I do. Now, you may not have known what you were getting yourself into, but you did it. And as I said, it's not a social convention. It's, not a, it's a statement of reality. When you wed, you became her head. You became the authority of the marriage and the home. Now, husbands have lots of commands, and there are many commands here in chapter 5 that will flow out of the indicative. But we need to at least get this much established, the indicative. We need to understand it. You are the head of your wife. How you exercise that is where the imperatives come in. For example, verse 25, husbands, love your wife. That's the imperative. Love her as Christ loved the church. There's the imperative. But the imperative flows from the indicative. What all this means, gentlemen, is that you are the dominant one in the relationship. You are the dominant one. This is significant. It's significant because as husbands, we will not obey the imperative unless we understand the indicative. Let me say it again. As husbands, we will not obey the imperative if we do not understand the indicative. We need to start here. We need to feel the weight of it. We need to understand the gravity of it. We need to recognize that it's not a societal convention, but it is rooted in the very nature and character of God himself. It is an unavoidable reality. You do not get to choose. Yes, you do. Here's your choice. Marry or not. Right? Maybe like the disciples, you could say like they did in Matthew 19. Hey, if marriage is like that, maybe I shouldn't get married. Okay. You do have that choice. But once you get married, you don't have a choice anymore. It happened. It happened. Point D, the application of all of this this morning is that as a husband, we have an inescapable leadership within our home. It is an inescapable leadership. You are the leader. Because you are the head, you are the one who carries the authority in the husband-wife relationship. What that means, to quote Doug Wilson in his excellent little book called Reforming Marriage, is that as a man, a husband, we cannot successfully refuse to lead. Let me say it again. As a husband, we cannot successfully refuse to lead. 
In other words, because God has created marriage in the way that he has, every man is the leader of his wife and his family. He is the dominant one in the relationship. The question is, what does your domination look like? What does it look like? It's an inescapable reality, but what does it look like? If as a husband you are following the pattern of Christ, then your home will be dominated by a loving, serving leadership. That's what will dominate the home. If as a husband you are regularly gone from the home and gone from the marriage due to extended business trips or or other commitments, then your home will be dominated by your absence. That's what will dominate your home. Again, Wilson says, how many children have grown up in a home dominated by the empty chair at the table? It's hard. It's hard. If as a husband you abdicate your leadership and your authority in the marriage... And by your abdication, you encourage your wife to assume a role for which she is neither a called nor equipped, then your home will be dominated by your abdication. That will dominate your home. An abdicating dad, an abdicating husband. And I might add here, gentlemen, it will also be accompanied by a frustrated wife and disrespectful children. That will be the outcome. You cannot give away your leadership. You can't. God does not give you that option. Even divorce, even divorce does not terminate the husband's Domination, his leadership, his authority, and his influence upon his family. He just now becomes a leader whose influence is characterized by distance, inattention, self-absorption, broken promises, and covenant unfaithfulness. That is now his domination. Divorce leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. As one writer said, and he said it well, headship demands involvement. Involvement demands time. Headship demands involvement. Involvement demands time. There's no way around it. No way around it. Gentlemen, for a man, marriage is not so much about privilege as it is about responsibility. Not so much about privilege as it is about responsibility. Too many husbands act like boys and seek to avoid or evade their responsibilities. 
gentlemen, we need to take the weight that God has assigned to us. And we need to do it, verse 18, by being filled by the Spirit. This is not in our own strength. This is not a pull myself up by the bootstraps affair. This is to throw myself fully on Christ. It's the beginning of 2019. It's, it's January. It's time to take inventory, and there's no better time than this. No better time than this. We need to take a look at our lives. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with God about our shortcomings, and we all have them. And we need to be honest about it. And we need to reacquaint ourselves with the, with the life-changing power of the gospel. The answer to this is not a self-help group. The answer to this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come back to it. Meditate on it. Revel in it. Be washed by it. And allow the Spirit of God to, to transform us. 2019 can be a huge year for you, for your marriage, for this church, for society. And all we need is here. But we got to go get it. We got to go get it. Let's pray. Our Father, a strong words. I pray that you would help us to heed them, to understand them, to take them to heart, to not deflect, to not redefine, to not grow so discouraged by our failures that we say, what's the point, what's the use, I've messed it up so bad. You are the God of second chances. You can do remarkable things. And you do remarkable things in a marriage where the husband and the wife give themselves to the word of God together in the pattern of godliness. Our Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as I pray for Carol and I that you would enable us this year to grow in grace to grow in the likeness of Christ, to be willing and able to confront our own shortcomings, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to exhort one another to love and good deeds. I pray you would, you would change us. None of us have arrived. Our Father, we all are on a continuum in and still have a path before us to walk. Whether someone has been married for a few months or someone has been married for 60 years, there's always a place to improve. Oh God, help us to take these things seriously. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, I'll be down front this morning. I don't know, I may have provoked a question or two, or maybe you just 
have another question, so we'll do a time of Q&A at 12.15. If you'd like to stay for that, then I invite you to stay, okay? God bless you.